Today's reading is from Mark 12, verses 13 through 27. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Miss Blake. So um, if you don't know, the last two weeks we took a break from Mark. Um, we are very intentional about um, preaching verse by verse in the Bible. So we will occasionally um, take maybe one, two, three, even four weeks to, to kind of do something separate. And uh, the last two weeks we, we took a pause on Mark. We've been going through Mark from the very beginning of, of start to, to start, uh, since we've started meeting on Sundays. And um, here's where you are in the story because it's been about three weeks since we've been in here just to kind of uh, catch everyone up. Jesus um, is, is clearly on his way to the cross as he's entered into Jerusalem. And he's on his way to the cross in such a way, not just to die physically, but um, there seems to be people all over trying to just bring down his popularity, um, his, his reputation, wh- whatever it is. And there is a group over Israel called the Sanhedrin. This is like our Supreme Court, but they are r- religious groups. So, so there is no separating church and state with Israel. There is a su- su- Supreme Court, and that is uh, the Sanhedrin. And they are made up of about 70 guys, Sadducees, priests, Pharisees, scribes, whoever it is. Um, and Jesus is going to encounter um, these guys as they continue to kind of put him to the test over over and over and over again. Now, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to go through two passages this morning. And what makes these passages weird is um, they take place in explaining something. Um, they're, they're using a real life situation to explain something else, kind of like a parable, but it's real life. And what I want to do is um, I want to talk about what it's ultimately explaining, what these two passages are ultimately explaining. But I also want to talk about the example that he's using. So, so what I mean by that is, if you can think of the statement we have, you know, don't jump off a bridge if someone tells you to, right? Um, we're using, we make that statement to, to, to explain a real life truth. Don't just be a follower. If someone just tells you to do something, you don't do it. Use your brain, right? But the reality is, the example itself could go, maybe I shouldn't jump off a bridge if someone tells me to jump off a bridge, right? Okay, what 
I want to do is I want to see ultimately what the passage is saying, but I also want to linger for a moment and talk about what, what's going on here and, and the, the example itself. If that doesn't make sense, hopefully it will in a couple of minutes. Mark chapter 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 13. Here we go. And they, that Sanhedrin group, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. I'm going to read a verse, explain, read a verse, explain. If you're new, we're going to do a Bible study, okay? Um, the, the Sanhedrin sends the Pharisees who are anti-Rome, super follow the Bible to a T, get it right. They team up with this Herodian group who are all about Rome, who feel like they can rule, Rome can rule over the Jews, but also are super hedonistic. They do what they want. These two groups, which we've met them both together to team up in the past, are going to come together against Jesus, but they have no rights being together. They're literally only teaming up because they hate Jesus, and they want to ultimately um, trap him in his talk. Now, if you, you've been with us in the last, you know, two chapters, this has happened again and again. And to be honest with you, like a good father, like anybody, any chance I have to like annoy my kids when I'm walking by, if I stick my finger in their ear or um, I'll take Eve's blanket and she's looking for it. Right. And, and then when she finds out I have it, I won't give it to her. Right. Um, ever. Um, okay. Right. As a good dad, I'm just kind of like messing with my kids. Right. There's this, uh, well, okay, maybe I think it's a good dad move, but um, they, they like get really annoyed, right? And they're like frustrated with me. And I'm just like, you know, hitting them in their forehead and stuff like that. Um, please don't call CPS. Um, here's my point. Um, the mood of, of what's going on here seems to be this kind of pestering, annoying, you keep asking me what's going on. Why do you, and asking this question, and they just keep mailing Jesus, not looking for answers, but ultimately looking to, to trap him. So, Uh, This is what happens in verse 14. They came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearance, but truly teach the way of God. We, we know um, if you've been in the story, this is clearly false flattery. This is not what they believe. Ultimately, he ends up saying in verse 15, they're putting him to the test and he sees their hypocrisy. So they're, oh, we know that you're great. They they don't really believe he's great. Um, It is lawful. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, the Pharisees come. Here's our situation. They're coming to trap Jesus, and they feel like they got him pegged. Because here's what they got. They come with him with a, a bunch of people, and they're coming, and they ask this question. Hey, um, we're told that we should pay taxes to Caesar. The problem is we're paying taxes to a people that we ultimately believe the Messiah will help us overcome. We, we don't think we should be paying taxes to them. So should we pay taxes to them? Or, or, or not? Should we give our money to Caesar or not? Now, Jesus, the dilemma, the horn of the dilemma essentially lies on the fact that um, if Jesus says, yes, pay them, the crowd is going to look at him and go, Pah! pay them? Are you serious? We shouldn't be under Rome. Why, why should we give Rome our money and all of his popularity, which obviously Jesus isn't necessarily concerned about, um, but more so it's his time in, in which he wants uh, uh, to show these people who he is. All these people are, are going to get up in arms about it. So, so there's this, the Pharisees are trying to win the people away from Jesus towards themselves. But if he says no, says, no, 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 don't worry about paying them. Well, immediately he becomes like a zealot nationalist. Like the Rome immediately will come down, crush him and go, oh, you think you don't have to pay? They'll put him in shackles and jail. So this is kind of the, the, the spot they pin Jesus on. Uh, they put him in and they think they've got him, right? So this is what Jesus says in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? There's this, what do you, <laughs> Jesus is legit, okay? He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness 
uh, an inscription is this. They said to him, Caesar. So I have a, um, a coin for you that I want you to look at. This is 99.9 uh, positive historically. This is the exact type of coin that Jesus is holding in his hand um, at this moment. A couple things about the coin um, on the front. I can just so you can read this. This is what it says on the front part on the, this, the one to the left. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. This is a, a coin that was in circulation between 14 and 27 AD. On the back, it's actually a picture of his uh, mother, which is uh, Maximus Pontifus, which means high priest. Uh, and so th- this coin is the one that Jesus is, is holding in his hand as he says, hey, bring me a coin. Now we can leave it up there for, for a second so you can kind of get uh, in, in uh, the the imagery that's being painted here by by Mark. Um, As he holds this coin, he asks the question, hey, whose image is on this coin, right? So we can clearly look and we go, Caesar's. I mean, it's a common practice in Rome is as soon as there's a a, a new Caesar, they're going to reprint money to put Caesar's image. So it's clearly Caesar's, right? And so um, Jesus makes this, as you can see the coin whose likeness is on the scripture. They said to him, Caesar's. Verse 17, Jesus said to him, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. You can put that away if you want. So here's what's, what's awesome. You don't have to be Christian to have heard that last line. You don't have to be Christian. You, you probably know, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, uh, give unto God what is God's. You, you get it, okay? But what's crazy is at the end of that, that verse there, they marvel at his response, and I, I know that we've kind of got used to hearing that statement because ultimately we're, we're not, like, what is there to marvel at? And it's actually kind of cool. We, we don't get an opportunity to do a word study that much um, because we, we don't know. Not everyone knows Greek, right? So I don't want to just hear and, and bore us with things that, to sound sm- smart or whatever it is. But I, there's really a cool thing that takes place in this that is worth 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 marveling at. Um, Eugene Peterson, actually, uh, in his uh, translation, I wouldn't call it a translation, I'd call it more of a commentary, but the Message Bible, um, at the end of that says, and their jaws dropped. Like their jaws dropped based on what Jesus said. So here's, here's what I mean. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. Here's why this uh, statement is super cool. Um, the Pharisees come, and they ask him a question about paying something. They use this word, who should we pay, or how should we pay, or should we pay these taxes? But Jesus doesn't respond back with whether or not they should pay. He uses a different word, the, word, the only verb in the sentence, and it's the word render. Now, um, if you know two languages, you know how unbelievably frustrating it can be to try to express um, when someone asks, well, how do you say this word, right? And so you're trying to translate this word to this word. And yes, it, it works, but there's something more to it, right? Think of even in our English language when we use the term, I, I give you my heart, or she gave away her heart, right? To a literal um, uh, people, they hear that, they would go, what are you talking about? Like, you, you didn't literally take your heart out and give it to her. No, the idea seems to be more of um, like a mood, an idea, a thought, something deeper, emotional that goes, you gave yourself away, you gave who you are, you gave your emotions away to who she is. And, and sometimes we, we run into words in English that don't translate as well because we have synonyms and we think all synonyms are the same. But there's different words because there's different variants or, or um, uh, a little type of nuances to each word. And the word render is really cool here. Um, and I don't want to bore people with, with uh, a word changes, so let me make this as exciting as possible because I find it ridiculously fascinating. He uses this verb render, and he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, 
The word render comes from a Latin word, uh, so you know in English, uh, dare, which is uh, the word uh, give. Uh, so it's like dare, give, right? And then we know the term re, which you can re-gift, reheat, re-eat, um, remake, whatever you want to say. Um, we, we have this idea of re, meaning back in Latin. So it's back, give, um, and Old French added an N between the two. So we have this back, give, but ultimately what it's saying is give back. What's crazy is some of you guys have an NIV Bible, and it doesn't say render. It says give back. It doesn't even say give, it says give back. So what is Jesus, what is so astonishing about what Jesus is saying in this moment? Because they're saying, hey, we have this money. We have this money, and should we give it to Caesar? And Jesus responds with this idea of, let me see the coin. Okay, do you see whose image is on this coin? Well, then this image, and we get this, right? We make statements like, is your name written on it, right? With kids, your, your kids are like, you know, give that, does it belong to you? And ultimately, you're sitting there going, it belongs to me. I bought it. Okay, so, um, right, this idea of give back, we understand because it, his name is on it that, that ultimately it does belong to Caesar. So if I was to try to unpack this word render, there's kind of two flavors to this. The first idea is that ultimately this coin belongs to Caesar. You've been given this coin, and now you have this coin, and you are to give it back because it ultimately belongs to Caesar. It literally has his name on it. It has his face on it. So, so we know this with our, our currency. You may have a dollar bill and say that's your dollar bill, but there are rules. You can't burn it. You can't cut it, right? There are rules. So ultimately it does belong to the government. So the first idea of what we're trying to unearth what Jesus is saying is here saying, listen, the coin bears his image. Give it back to him. Rendering has this notion of returning back, but there's something else that, that like makes this whole idea full. And it's the idea that when you do this, when you get something back to the original maker, the original owner of it, you are fulfilling the purpose of that coin. Rendering has everything to do with like a certain, like you are rendering, you are fulfilling the purpose of that coin. This coin was made to go back to Caesar. So here's, here's my point. Um, he makes this statement about a coin. That ultimately we are to render this coin because it belongs to Caesar and it needs to go back to Caesar. And when we do that, we ultimately fulfill the purpose of the coin. But then he makes the same declaration about you and I. That we bear the image like the coin bears the image of Caesar. We bear the image of our creator. And we're not just to give nonchalantly. We're not just to say, yeah, yeah, I need to give my life to God. Wait a minute, homie. Like, check it out. There's two parts to this when Jesus tells us to render. There's this idea that ultimately your image or his image is on you. So you're, you're going back to your creator. All that you are goes back to him. But furthermore, you're fulfilling your purpose when you do that. You were made to do that. Jaw drop, right? They, they, they automatically go, wow, we really thought we had him. Because the, the reality is Jesus shows his swagger within the scripture as he kind of navigates this idea and, and puts this in front of them and says, hey, hey, check it out. Um, uh, you can give to Caesar all the money you want, but Caesar doesn't have your heart. He doesn't have your mind. He doesn't have the joy in which you would give those things. God has those things. Now, I said in the beginning, I want to talk about the example that's used and ultimately what it's meaning. And that is ultimately what it's meaning. Ultimately, what's going at is Jesus is showing his authority and how awesome he is in the text and, and navigating and teaching them something. But there is something that we can pull. Um, there's actually two things that we can pull from this example, this, this idea of actually jumping off a cliff uh, from the beginning. And, and, and the first one has to do with paying taxes, right? Right. Um, 
As I've gotten older, um, I've definitely recognized and met more people who kind of find their way to trump their way through uh, tax, hole, tax holes, right? Trump their way, get it? Trump. He trumps, okay. Um, I'm sorry. I used it in the first service, and I wasn't planning on it, and then I thought of it, and then I thought it would be a funny second service, and it was terrible, and I shouldn't have done that. Okay. Um, so so I'm, I've definitely seen, like, there's ways that we can. So I just want to very quickly, maybe for those of you who, like, process, I, I don't think I'm going to say anything that you would disagree with, but the idea is um, that we, we should be paying taxes. Um, so I know that when you begin to talk about governmental things and taxes, that the bureaucrats may be able to come out. So I wrote down what I want to say about taxes. And again, I don't think there's anything to disagree about, but I just want to say this so we are clear in what we think Jesus is talking about, about paying taxes, okay? He, hear me when I say this. For the love of God, pay your federal income tax, pay your state tax, pay your local tax, pay your sales tax, pay your property tax, your personal property tax, your capital gains tax. The list could go on and on and on. We are free to take every tax deduction that is both legal and honest. We do not have to pay the maximum amount um, of taxes possible. If the government allows you a tax break, take it. If there is a legal way you can shelter some of your money from being taxed, shelter it. By all means, take the deduction for your children, your mortgage, your moving expenses, so on and so forth. Again, feel free to take every legal and honest opportunity to reduce your tax burden. But hear me, okay? Illegal or dishonest methods, illegal or dishonest methods must be rejected. Um, Romans 13, 2 would say this, consequently, um, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what, is, uh, what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So let me just explain this, because I think there's like, well, I can do it, and it's legal. Um, here's what I would ask you. This is not canon. This is not absolute. But when you think about paying taxes, let me just say this, because if you're in college, you, have, you don't really care about at all what I'm saying right now. But if, if, if you own a home and you're trying to think through taxes or a business or whatever it is, here's, I think, a good question you can ask, should I do this? And I, this has helped me. I'm I'm not saying you have to, but this has helped me whenever I come to a, a question like this. Ask the question, um, immediately think of a mentor, a father, a mother, whoever it is, and ask the question, would I lose respect of them? A little, would, I, would there be a little loss of respect if they did that? Like if you went, wow, I, I, would, I don't see you as somebody who's doing that right? Because that person immediately, you, you have this kind of high, which you should have of yourself. You should have this high. Instead of, Robbie Zacharias says, a man is never so creative as when justifying his own sin. You, you, you tend to, to be creative in how you want to justify these little loopholes, but maybe ask the question to, to go above and beyond that and go, man, what is right to do that? Now, here's the second problem with this, because I've actually had this a couple times in the last uh, couple months. Um, what about we're paying taxes towards a government that supports Planned Parenthood, Okay. Um, uh, we can get more into the nuances of that on the first week in October. Um, but for now, let me say this. Jesus is saying this in a time when a dude named Nero is in charge. And Nero is arguably the most evil man to ever walk the earth, okay? He, he all, like, worse than Stalin and Hitler, this dude killed children and people maliciously for no reason. And in this, Jesus is saying, pay your taxes, okay? Pay your taxes. So just keep that in your mind. For the love of God, just pay your taxes. Be a good citizen. That's the last thing I think we'll, that's time we'll ever talk about taxes um, on Sunday. Here's the second thing we're going to spend a little more time on um, that I don't believe it's ultimately talking about. So the first one is it's not ultimately talking about taxes, but we can learn some things. And it's also ultimately not talking about giving, but he does talk about us rending ourselves to God. Um, and he's holding a coin while he does it. So um, let's start with this. Um, I have done a terrible job in the six months that we've been together. And if you've been in the communities from the ethos of Redemption Peoria before Redemption Peoria ever existed, um, 
about talking about giving. Um, I am terrible at this. I, I, um, I know that giving is a discipleship issue, but man, if I just super candid, honestly, like I didn't say this, like I have a ton of baggage when it comes to this stuff, man. I come from a place where I've, and this isn't me dropping names, but I've been in the room with the Haggies, the Dollars, the Creflo, his name is literally Dollar, Creflo Dollar, um, the, the Duplantis. I, I've been, and I've seen the wickedness, man. Uh, and, and I, so I, I, I've seen manipulation and greed try to stir and sway the heart to get money for man's kingdom so much that I think um, I really have erred on the wrong side. Like I've, I've swung the pendulum and I just don't talk about it. I know that there's a lot of you out there who um, don't care that we talk about money. And there's a lot of you who do care. And I would resonate with the latter um, because I, I've seen it messed up. And so I, I haven't wanted to talk about it because I feel like um, the perception is, for some of you, and even me as a pastor, I do look at other churches and go, all they want is our money. Like the TBNs of the world are killing me inside. Because I watch them and I go, they just want, I've literally been in rooms where they're just, they take a letter that they were supposed to read and pray for, cut the envelope open, take the letter out, throw it in the trash, grab the check, put it in the bin. Take the letter, cut it open, grab the letter, throw it in the trash. They just, they didn't want the letter. They weren't going to anoint you with, they, they just wanted your money. And I've seen that and it like scarred me deep. It scarred my wife and I like in bad places that we were, I, I, I stand up here and I don't want to talk about money, but I don't feel like I would be fair to the text if I didn't at least bring this idea up. So, so I do want to talk to you about money. Um, and here's why I do this um, with some semblance of joy. Um, I'm, I want to talk to you about money, um, and I'm okay to do so because we are doing great financially. Like, I'm not up here asking for a new car, a new house. Like, if you want to help me buy a tree house, I'm all for that. That's what I want. I, I want a tree and a tree. I need the tree before I can get to the tree house. Um, so if you want to help me buy that, let's do this thing, okay? Um, please don't give me tree money after this. Um, my, my, my point is this. Um, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not like scared to talk about it in this moment. I'm probably most, most willing to talk about it because we are doing financially well. Redemption Peoria is super slim, man. There is one person paid full time myself and two part-time people, Summer Wallstrom and Jim Ellis. Summer handles everything that is kids and Jim handles pretty much everything else. And, and those who are part-time, I'm full-time. And just so you know, and this isn't like a better or worse than, but there's a church our size, a little smaller than us that has five full-time people and four part-time people. We run a very slim operation. Um, I just met with uh, some of the guys financially um, on Wednesday, and we are 500% over what was originally budgeted um, for for our plant. We're doing really, really well. The love of God, keep giving, though. Don't hear that and stop giving, okay? Um, Now, now, now here's, here's, that makes it a little easier for me to say, hey, listen, we need to give because the people who've called this place their home and have given, they, they've taken care of um, uh, the way that we do church, the way that we operate, the way that we do things. And so maybe you're asking, okay, well, with all that extra money, what do you do with it? Allow me to explain that. And here's how I'm going to do this. So I want to very quickly, in about five minutes, explain um, a biblical mentality when it comes to giving and why we believe giving is a discipleship issue. The same way that you should discipline yourself to read your Bible, 
The same way you should discipline yourself to talk to your neighbor about mission, the same way you should discipline yourself to read um, and pray, the same way you should discipline to do all those practices, we believe giving is a clear indication of that. Now, here's where I want to start um, with giving. So um, in Genesis 1, uh, I, I've said this from the beginning, over and over with people, whenever they ask me about giving, this is, this is where I think this idea can really help you understand why I'm not just money hungry, okay? Um, and I really do believe this is for our best good to give. Because in the beginning of Genesis 1, verses 1 through 25, God makes everything. If you want to read it, go back and read it. He makes everything. And then we get to verses uh, 26, 27, and 28, and God makes man. Now, what's awesome about God making man is he makes man in his own image, okay? So we have, let's do an equation. We have two things. God makes everything, then God makes man in, in his own image. Then the third part of the equation is God takes everything and gives it to man. So the first kind of characteristic we find out about God is not that just he's a creator, but he is a giver. That God takes everything that could be created. He doesn't just create things. He creates the things that can create things. He creates all this and he gives it to man. And then we're made in his image. So check it out. If God is a giver and we are made in his image, we are givers. We're wired. We're, like, you don't have to be a Christian to believe this. I mean, Oprah can show us this, that the idea of, that when you give, you feel good. I just feel good about giving. Because you're made to be that. That's a, like your DNA is in such that, that you reflect your creator, that you are made to give. And when you hoard, you only find destruction. You find unhappiness and, and, and lack of joy. But when you give, you're giving into, you're doing, you're acting as you should be, as you were created. Now, there are three things that I think I want to point out when we talk about giving that I hope are helpful. The first thing is this. Uh, it finds in, uh, actually keep that up for me in Genesis 1. It finds its uh, roots in Genesis 1:28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Um, you can go to the next slide. So this, the first thing that takes place is in Genesis, the first imperative. An imperative in English is something that um, we're being told to do something. Go outside pick up that chair. Those are imperative verbs. The very first imperative is God in this moment, uh, uh, for the first time, is telling us to do something. He is telling us essentially, as I put in there, to subdue the earth and govern it. It literally means to master it. Like to take what God has given you and be a master over it. Be a, be a, 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 a like a smooth craftsman to, to know how you do it. Now listen, you're not, well maybe most of us aren't like harvesting tomatoes. Most of us are in, in an office we're maybe around a computer or we're outside in construction or we're firefighters or teachers or nurses or whatever it is. And you aren't like getting this direct harvest, but your harvest, your, what you're getting paid, what God is giving you is money, literally, like dough, scratch, whatever you want to call it. He's giving you the, the, this, this check of money. And in that moment, I would argue Genesis 1 tells us we are to take this and be a master over it. We're to be wise about this. We're to subdue it. So I put this, and I try to tell people when we talk about this, in being orderly and masterful in a governing way, um, I would just say, be a grown-up, okay? Like, I was in youth ministry for a long time, and the idea of, all right, it's time to give, and kids are busting out whatever change they have, that's cute for a while, but eventually you, you need to be a grown-up. And a grown-up doesn't emotionally just respond, oh, I need to give, it's Sunday. No, no, hear me. Like, um, maybe you don't need the... NFL network, the NBA network, the MLB network, and then the hockey network. Maybe you don't need all those. Maybe you don't need to um, uh, give to this certain. So, so my point is, um, 
instead of just emotionally trying to give, being a master over it, saying, here's what I have, here's what I give to. When it comes time to renew these things, let me think through how I give. Let me think through where I allocate my funds. That's called being a grown-up. And so what I would try to push in front of you is before we talk about how you should give, you need to understand you need to be a master in subduing what God has given you. You have resources that 95% of the world will never see in their life. And, and we can't just nonchalantly just spend whatever we want, however we want. That's why I don't have a uh, tree yet. Um, in Exodus and Numbers, God gives us specific instructions on uh, what to give. Example, this many doves, so on and so forth. There's very systematic approach to being a master of this. God is very intentional about that. Um, now, I know immediately the question is how much, and I'm not going to give you the answer. So here's what I'm going to say about being a master of your finances, mastering and subduing uh, the resources and the earth that God has given you. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 9.7 says that each one should give as he is determined in his own heart. Okay. So I'm not going to sit here and talk 10% or whatever. Listen, you need to sit down with God. Say, I need to give 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, you know, whatever, whatever you want to give. Um, okay? I, I need to, to figure out what God has, has told, what I feel like the Holy Spirit is laying on my heart to give. Okay? Now, two ways that I think you can give that are very important. The first one is this. Um, at the core, I need you to read those yellow letters because they're huge. Give as a church, not just to a church. This was, the, um, this was the genesis of me seeing the problem with giving to churches. That what took place is the, the pronouns, give to us your finances, tended to be in the DNA of how we talked about the money in church. It's your money, give it to us. Can you hear the dichotomy in that? That it wasn't giving as a church, that I'm giving, you're giving, we're giving as a church. It was you transactionally giving to a church. So, so can I just say this, man, like the reason that I think that there's such a freedom and we're doing so well financially is because the people who are giving are in. Like we're just not looking at the end of service today and we say, this is a moment where we give. You need to, you know, give whatever. No, listen, we want the people who call this place their home to give. And we give as a church. So that 500% um, uh, more money than we thought we had it in. So let me explain how our finances work, just so you can have a little bit of security. And if you have any questions about any of the way that we spend our money, um, you can email Stephen Wallstrom at stephenwallstrom um, at redemptionaz.com. And he will answer any questions. You can see me in the lobby and I'll give you his email address again. All, everything that we spend, every dime, you can view how we spend it all. But here's what we do with our money, okay? Um, this is important because this is totally counterintuitive to the way that you guys know church. Come Thanksgiving... We're going to collect turkeys, okay? But we are not having you collect turkeys and bring them here so Sean Myers, Jim Ellis, and Summer Wallstrom can go door-to-door passing them out. We are going to collect turkeys, and guess what, bro? You better get to know your neighbor quick because we're going to collect turkeys and give them to you to give to your neighbor. So, so the ethos of what we're doing is we collect money so that together as a church, I ain't the church. You're the church. We're the church. So you find ways to do ministry. Perfect example. We have something called Redemption Community Grants, RC Grants, okay? A a, a redemption community, this is why a lot of you don't know about how we serve because it's all done through our communities. Um, A community comes up and says, hey, listen, I'd like some money. I'd like to give some money here because ultimately um, I have this project that I'd like to give to, okay? So um, 
Uh, about two months ago, my next door neighbor, uh, Lori, uh, single mom, uh, yard was a disaster. And we as a community, I went to her and said, hey, we'd like to redo your yard. We want to put in a sprinkler system. We want to lay down grass. We want to take out all these weeds. And it's legit. I was going to show you a picture of it. It's beautiful now, right? Okay. What we did in that moment, it cost about $400 to do. We went to the elders and said, hey, listen, we'd like a redemption community grant. We all put this money together. We believe this is a good way to bless a widow who, who needs help. And we want to bless her, help her. And we did. So do you hear the philosophy difference? It's not you giving so that somebody else can do the work of the ministry. You're giving so that you can do the work of the ministry. Because we believe ultimately when we pool our money together, the, the, the opportunities and the ways we can give are exponential. So we give as a church, not to a church. Please know that, man. We're asking you to be a part of what we're doing, not just give from a distance. Okay? Um, there's tons of scripture that you can say. Here's the last thing that I, I, I would be remiss in saying, and I don't think this is said enough um, in the church, so I want to say um, you also, in, in giving as a church, as you, as you continue to give to our, uh, us as a church uh, together, you also need to find ways to give individually. Um, and I say this because it is for your own good. Not to me, not to, not, like, I, I don't, you, you need to find, and I gave some examples, neighbors, panhandlers, family, adopting a child, whatever it is, you need to build a relationship. When you go to that panhandler, he's asking for money. Why don't you sit down and have lunch with him? Get to know his story, buy him lunch, maybe give him a gift card. Or you, need, you need to give as an individual. You are made to be a giver. And when you don't do that, you, you are working against your very created nature. Okay, so um, that's all I'm going to say about money. I don't know how often we're going to talk about it, but I'm expecting big bucks in those boxes after service. Um, Okay, let's go on. So here's this idea. Jesus, back to our text. That was a heat. Okay, Um, back to our text. So so Jesus has just shown his authority in in walking us through what it means to give. It doesn't mean just to, to casually throw out, but it means to give back to and fulfill in the way that we are. Okay. I want to talk this next passage because it's argued as why Mark would put here. All the other Gospels put it in a different place. Why would Mark put this here? And I think I, I know the reason because ultimately it seems to be the motivation um, as, as to why we're to do the former. Um, this, is, this is what I mean. I'm going to read the whole passage and I'm going to explain it out. Acts, or wow, uh, Mark 18 uh, through 27 in chapter 12. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, That if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So um, we just met the Pharisees, but now there's another group, the Sadducees, who disagree with the the Pharisees. The Sadducees... um, do not believe that when you die, you will be raised from the dead. The Pharisees do believe this. Paul actually in Acts ends up using this to, to have them argue against each other. But the Sadducees believe when you die, you die. There is no resurrection. There is no bodily resurrection. And so they come with this question. They come up and say, hey, um, since Jesus, you, you would hold or believe in the resurrection, why don't you explain, so explain this little doohickey to me? Um, if if uh, there's a man and he's married to this woman, and uh, they, they end up, you know, having sex, consummating that marriage. Uh, they have no kids, but then he dies. Well, Moses tells us, and he refers to Deuteronomy, Moses tells us that, that the brother should, should take the, um, the, the wife. And so the brother does, the second brother does, and then, well, then he ends up dying. And then, okay, well, fine, the third brother takes it in. Eventually, the fourth brother's like, oh, my gosh, this is my turn's coming up soon, and I'm going to die. Um, okay, 
So, so eventually you get through seven brothers. You're like, what's wrong with this woman? Um, okay. Uh, you get through seven brothers and then she dies. Now, if you believe in the resurrection, who, whose wife is she going to be? And then this is another, they feel like they have him pinned, right? They have him pinned. Who, whose wife is she going to be? Now, the, the, the Sadducees um, don't believe there's anything more. And Jesus proves this right away. Ironically enough, the same reason we struggle with resurrection as well. And his, it, the reason he, he brings it up is this. Um, it's found in uh, verse 24. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So the reason you misunderstand this is because you don't know the text and you don't know how powerful God is going on. For, they, uh, for when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So he makes this declaration. You miss it because you don't understand the text and you don't understand the power of God. See, here's what happens. When you die, um, you're like angels in heaven. Now, just to be clear, um, we do not become angels when we die. Uh, let, me, let me just, because this is a belief still within, I was talking to somebody at my grandpa's funeral who said, well, he's an angel now. I'm like, you're crazy. Um, okay, um, this is from uh, um, N.T. Wright. He says, the saying that the resurrected dead will be like angels in heaven does not mean that they will be like them in all respects, including disembodiment. They are like the angels in this respect only that they will not marry. They are beyond death. They will not need to propagate the species or continue the family, which was the point of the law that he's talking about in the brothers marrying each other in Deuteronomy. They will have gone into a new mode of bodily life in which such things are irrelevant. Okay, here's why I think this is a, a, a really cool for us to read about and understand um, in light of what we just read. See, the Sadducees um, view what we're experiencing now as it. There is no life. There is no beyond. There is no resurrection. And Jesus takes immediately this idea of marriage, and I love it because in the American church, this is our idol, man. Like, talking to single people, it's as if you're not complete unless you're married which is crazy, then Jesus and Paul were not complete. This is insane that we've made this the course. And so it's so hard for us to understand that when you die, you won't even be married. Like the idea of marriage, this is why you're married. You are married, Ephesians 4, you are married to show God's relationship, Jesus' relationship in accordance with the church, the body. Ephesians 5, I believe. Sorry, not Ephesians 4. That the, the point of this is to show the bride of Christ and Jesus. So people, your neighbor is supposed to look at you if you're a married couple and go, oh, that's what Jesus' relationship is supposed to look like with his church. That's what, that's what it is. But when we are resurrected and stand complete and being full in the resurrected life, and, and I know it sounds crazy, right? But all those things, procreation and, and, and you, it's all consummated. It, it's all done. Now, here's why this is a, a big deal, right? Because um, this ultimately is the motivation that helps us understand what rendering is. So, so, so what I mean by that is you have no reason to submit to the government um, like Nero or a government that, that, that gives uh, to Planned Parenthood. Or you have no reason to give your life away, to pick up your cross, to give your money away to the, the bride of Christ and to God unless you believe there is more to life than this. Like, it doesn't even make sense. And the Sadducees can, can listen to this and go, but there's no resurrection, so, so who cares? 
So, so the motivation, here, here's what I'd say. You need to understand this. Um, I, I, I'm not a very linear preacher, if you haven't noticed. Um, I sometimes I'm going off random things, blaming Jim for stuff just randomly in my messages or whatever. Okay, um, I, I, I'm not. And so what I want to do at the end of our time together is really make sure that we're clear in what I'm saying because I'm not always sure in, in what I'm saying. So um, I, I want to, to just explain, very summarize what I'm saying. I, I wrote a sentence down, um, and hopefully this helps. Here's what I need you to know as, as um, we finish up, okay? Jesus is showing his ultimate authority of Scripture by disputing the Sanhedrin. What we learn from these conversations is that we are to give freely to all those that are owed, including God, that we owe him our lives. This is motivated by the fact that the resurrection is real and there is more to life than this. But here's the deal. Here's the trick. You can leave here thinking, I need to give my life away. I need to give my resources away. I need to make sure I need to get it right. But that's not what I'm asking you to do. Here's what I, here's, if you can walk out of here and say, well, what, what should I do? The New Testament is clear over and over and over again. That you are to find joy. You are to follow commandments. You are to believe in the way that you do because you have a hope. 1 Peter 1.3 tells us to, to, to resonate, to meditate on this living hope. That we are to be reminded in Colossians 1 that, that this is what gives us the joy of our salvation. That the, this hope is what does it. That one day there is more. That you will see Jesus face to face. Um, I, I want to close um, with a story. But before I do, um, I want to read something to you in, in 1 Corinthians 15. I think I actually gave this um, passage. Because there, there's a couple things that, that are important when we hear this, right? Um, because without this idea, if we are like the, Sa- the Sadducees um, and we believe that, that there is no resurrection, then you're right, giving is pointless. What is the purpose of all this? And Paul actually says this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Wow, that's nice and not confusing, Um, okay? Um, Here's what he's saying. Ultimately, he's telling us if there is no resurrection, if if you don't sit there and and trust and go, listen, when you go to work going, God, I believe there's more to life than this. This is why I'm a good worker. I believe there's more to life than this. This is why I'm a good husband, why I'm a good wife, why I'm a good father, why I'm a good mother, why I'm a good family member, why I'm a good neighbor. This is why. Because I believe there's more than just this. And unlike the Sadducees who are stuck in this moment, I believe at the core of who I am that I'm to give everything back to God because there is a living hope. There is something more. But if there's not, what's the point of everything we are doing? Like, if that's not true, then our very mission is pointless. But furthermore, it it gets crazier than that. He says this, For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Like, if you don't believe that there is a resurrection, that you will experience a new life, then then the the way in which you even live your life now, the the, the fact that you believe that Jesus has died for your sins, if he has not been raised from the dead, there is no forgiveness of sins. You're, You're dead in your sins. And he goes on to say, you should be pitied above all people. Like, it's sad that we're sitting in here talking about a Jesus that we say was raised from the dead, but he wasn't really raised from the dead. No, the resurrection is very real. And for you to render back to God, you have to remember that. No, 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 I remember. I know that the world around me is telling me other things, but I remember. I know that the world says this, but I know the truth. I know that there's more to the world than what I'm seeing right now. I remember, I remember, and because of that, I render back. So 
Here's where I'm going to finish. About five years ago, I was given a book, um, The Greatest Stories Never Told. Um, it's a crazy book. Maybe some of you guys have read this. Sometimes I find myself in the last five years just picking up and like reading through them, and you're like, oh my gosh, that's nuts. I can't believe that happened. Um, I, I want to read one of these stories because um, I read it about three years ago, and I thought it was awesome um, in explaining, and I immediately think about, about this when I was uh, processing why we don't render to God and, and how we should focus on. Um, it, it's, I'll, it's very small. Um, I'll just uh, sum up very quickly so we can go on. It takes place in, um, the story takes place in 1585. Uh, there's this guy named Thomas uh, Harriet, who is a historian and surveyor of the New World. He came from Britain. This is before America is America, and he, he comes from Britain to kind of check out this new world that was discovered. And incoming, he begins to immerse himself in culture. He begins to hang out with the, the Native Americans. He begins to, to, to um, rub elbows with the people that are here, and he's finding a lot of cool stuff. Well, he ends up finding this herbal remedy that he is and unbelievably infatuated with. Like, he, he, he loves it. He go, this is what he says about this herbal, herbal remedy that he finds in the, um, the new land. Um, in his account, Harriet told of discovering an, astonish herbal, an astonishing herbal remedy called Upawak. It, cultiv- it was cultivated by local tribes. This is what he says about it. It opens up your pores and passages, whereby the body is notably preserved in health, and that you know not many grievance diseases, which we in England are all too afflicted with. So he says, I found this herbal remedy over here in this, this uh, what is soon to be America. And he's writing back. He actually writes the first English book um, on the new land. He, he, he's writing back and he's telling people, I found this remedy. It opens up your pores. It preserves your health. It's awesome. Like, you guys got to try this. So um, he goes on to say this. Intrigue, the colonists tried the herbal concoction themselves and had so many rare and wonderful experiences. That's how they would describe it. Um, rare and wonderful experiences with it that they brought back a load uh, to introduce to all of England. And then this herbal remedy expanded, like blew up all over England. Okay? And people are, are taking it for health reasons and all that. Okay? Um, well, here, here's how the, the story ends. Upawak created a lasting sensation upon reaching the shores of Britain. It is actually still used with us today, but now we take a different view of its medicinal uses and qualities. We also call it by a different name. We call it by its Spanish name, tobacco. Um, what was crazy about when I read that story and I thought, here are people who are like, yeah. Now, listen, this is not about not smoking cigarettes, okay? Do whatever, like, that's not a law. That's a preference, and uh, you can... You know, if you want to die early, do, do your thing. Um, okay? <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. It's, it's not, I know some God, godly dudes who smoke, but that's a whole nother point. Um, okay? Um, but they're dying sooner. So, um, okay? <clears throat> Here, here's here's, here's what, what, what I want to say this. Here are people who are taking, um, who, are, who are smoking this tobacco, right? And they're like, oh, it's great. They're believing what they're experiencing now. Little do they know, in the future, they will find out that everything they did then was bad like was a waste of like it was actually worse for them it's crazy because if we believe in the resurrection we will stand in the presence of god we will see him face to face everything will go strangely dim and we'll go what was i doing why would i not give my money away what am i like what am i hoarding it for that like, we will stand in the resurrection and know that everything the Bible said is real and true, not a jot or iota was gone. Here we're going to stand before him and go, what was I thinking? Same way. I hope that we, re- we remember this and, and that we're not giving um, because we have to, but Jesus rendered his life to God before we ever would do that. He points us in the direction in which he already walked out. So he gives us an example, not just in death and the resurrection, but also life and submitting to God. I hope we do the same in rendering our life back to God. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for who you are. We are grateful for the opportunity to be able to do what we are uh, doing here uh, to gather and talk about your word. We pray that you would be glorified in it. We pray that uh, ultimately um, we would understand at the core of who we are that we are to render back. We are to give back um, all that you have given us. We did not will our arms to grow in our mother's womb or our brains to grow the way that it did. We are, some of us are naturally good in areas, and we do not know why. And that is a gift that has been bestowed on us, and we are to give that gift back to you. Let us please be diligent in doing so. But only allow us to do this with the motivation that, Jesus, you have done it first, you have raised from the dead, and that all earthly things will grow strangely dim and only find their fulfillment in the fact that one day we will see you face to face. We know this is true. We believe it in our heart that it's true, but man, sometimes the world tries to steal that, that knowledge, steal that joy, steal that purpose from us. Let us not be foolish thinking that tobacco opens our pores and, 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 and preserves our health, but we would see what it's doing, that we would see that this world is trying to vie for our attention, but we'd focus on you, that we would be a light unto the world because you've been so good to us, desperately proclaiming your hope and resurrection. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.